What is the greatest threat today to a family? We could mention a number of things. Divorce comes to mind. Divorce is not a good thing. We would all agree with that. Uh, nobody wins in divorce. Everybody gets hurt. A lot of broken hearts because of divorce. That's a huge threat to the family. Pornography is another threat. Pornography gets its grip around a man. It uh, gets a hold of a thought life. Images get so strong in his life. It takes away his devotion and his commitment to his wife. Uh, the dangers, the, the, the pain, the crime, the rape that comes from pornography, that's a huge danger to the family. We could list numbers of things that are threats to families. It may surprise you. One of the greatest threats to the family today is fatigue. Fatigue. Would you have thought of that? You know, the enemy is very cunning, isn't he? He's very crafty. In Ephesians 6, we read this. It says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against, the old King James says, the wiles of the devil. How many of you use the word wiles this week in your vocabulary? <laughs> W-I-L-E-S. We don't use that word. What is a wile? Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the enemy. The enemy is relentless. The enemy is interested in bringing down families. He's interested in bringing down marriages. Now, he'll try a number of different ways to bring down our homes and to bring down our families and to take away the joy of the relationships that we have with each other. But would you ever have thought of fatigue as one of his methods? We live in a fatigued culture. We are overloaded and therefore we are fatigued. We are overextended, we are overanxious, we are overworked, we're overly tired, we're just overwhelmed. That's our culture. About three years ago, I was into my fall speaking schedule. I do about 32 men's conferences a year around the country. I had had some good time off in the summer. I was three weeks into my fall schedule, and I came home, and I told Mary, I said, you know what? I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm worn out. I am absolutely whipped, and I'm just getting started. And I'll tell you what, I was in trouble. And I knew I was in trouble because I was just getting started, and I was finding myself at home being irritable. I was finding myself being short, being impatient. And I thought, you know, something's wrong. And so I began to try to do a diagnosis. And I began to, to look at myself and compare myself to the scriptures. And I thought to myself, this isn't the abundant life that Jesus talked about. Something's wrong. I knew that nothing was wrong with the scriptures. I knew it had to be with me. And so I began to do some analysis. And I was trying to figure out, how did I get so exhausted? How did I get so tired? So I went to the scriptures. And you know, it's amazing to me how the scriptures diagnose the condition of our hearts and the condition of our lives. And as I began to look at my life and I began to look at the life of those around me, I had to ask the question, why are we so overloaded? I came up with three things. Number one, I think as a culture, I think as a nation, we're overloaded because of the pace of life. The pace of life. Secondly, some of us are overloaded because of the pressures of life. Others are overloaded because of the pain of life. You're in a particular chapter of life where the pain is acute. Let's go back to the pace of life, the pace of American life, 24-7. What does 24-7 mean? 24-7 means that you are open and that you are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is the American motto. That is the American standard. Have you ever had someone call you early in the morning? I mean real early in the morning. You hear the phone. You're in a deep sleep. You're in a coma. You hear this ringing. You grope for the phone. You grab it. You say, hello? 
And they, on the other end, they go, oh, did I wake you? Well, it's 3.15. What is our tendency? It's to say, no. We're ashamed to admit that we ever sleep. Because we live in this culture that we call 24-7. You're supposed to be accessible on top of things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So someone calls you early morning, you're asleep, you're embarrassed that you were asleep. That comes from living in a 24-7 culture. There's an auto dealership in Dallas, and their motto is, the best never rest. That's wrong. Because you see, the best did rest. Why is it we have such trouble resting in this culture? Well, it's because we, we go 24-7. We start very early in the morning in our house. We don't have an alarm clock anymore. We have a starter's gun. <laughs> Come out of the box. <laughs> we're running, we're getting, we're faxing, we're emailing, and then we have breakfast. And then, is it not amazing how fast we live our lives? Is this the way we really want to live? The pace of life is killing us because we're in this 24-7 mindset. What else contributes to the pace of life are a couple of words. Uh, the first word would be more. We are driven in this culture by more. We've got to have more. Here's another word that fuels the pace of life. It would be the word better. We're always interested in better. Why are we interested in better? Because we think better is the place of happiness. We want better, so in order to get better, you've got to work harder and you've got to be on 24-7 even with more intensity than you are at this point. Have you ever had this experience? Uh, you're enjoying your life, you're enjoying your home, but you walk into a model home. What's gonna happen when you're gonna walk into that model home? You know what you're gonna see? You're gonna see more, and you're gonna see better. And suddenly what happens is, you're acutely aware that you're missing some things in your life. You walk into a kitchen, unbelievable kitchen in this model home. This kitchen has an island. You don't have an island. Your life would be vastly improved if you had an island in your kitchen. <laughs> But you don't have an island, yet here's a model home that has an island. And you begin to think, well, if we did this and we worked a little more hours and we changed this and we shifted the kids around, and you're doing everything you can do to get that house that has an island because you think if you had an island, your life would be better. Why would you need an island? Is your last name Gilligan? <laughs> Is there anything wrong with having a nice house with an island in the kitchen? No. But if you have to sacrifice everything else in your life that's important to get an island, that's a bad move. You know, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about success. We do. But the Bible talks a lot about contentment. Isn't that interesting? Contentment. You know what the, uh, the danger is to contentment? Here, here's the enemy of contentment. Comparison kills contentment. It kills it. We tend to compare with people who have more. What we should do is compare with people who have less. It gives you a whole different perspective. Why is it that we're so driven by this pace of life, this 24-7 life? We're so driven by more, by better. I think there are three lies that are everywhere in our culture that we hear all the time. Let me give them to you. First lie would be this. First lie is you can have it all. That's a lie we hear all the time. Would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2? In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, we're going to get a firsthand eyewitness testimony from a man who actually had it all. Uh, now, if someone were to sit down with you and say you can have it all and you were rational and sane, and not under any pressure, you would say to them, well, of course I can't have it all. There's no way I could have it all. But see, incessantly we are told that message, you can have it all. And, and we tend to bury it in our subconscious, and we tend to believe it, and that contributes to the pace of life, and it makes us go 24-7, because we would like to have it all, because if we had it all, we would be happy. Here's the fact of the matter, you will never have it all. And if you got it all, where would you put it? 
it makes no sense to think that I could have it all. Solomon was a man who had it all. He was David's son when he ascended to the throne. God said, I'll give you anything that you request. Solomon requested wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and God gave him everything else, including riches. Solomon was a man who truly was able to have it all. He had the resources to get it all. We won't be able to do that. God enabled Solomon to do it so he could tell us what it was like. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4, he explains his attempt to have it all. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses, not a house, houses for myself. You're talking architectural digest houses. The wealth of Solomon, his homes, were to such a degree that the scriptures tell us that the queen of Sheba came to visit him. When she saw his possessions and and his homes, the scripture says that there was no spirit left in her. She was so overwhelmed by the prosperity and the wealth and the riches that this man had. She said, the half was not even told to me. And, And she herself was an incredibly wealthy woman. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. Solomon sent ships all over the world, bringing back the best of everything. He had all this stuff. He had it. He had it brought in. Why? Because he wanted to have it all. Look at verse 5. I made gardens and parks for myself. We're talking Central Park. We're talking about Golden Gate Park. We're talking about unbelievable gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He brought in fruit from all over the world. Look at verse 6. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Brought in trees from all over the world, trees that weren't indigenous to Israel. He says, I possess flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Solomon wanted to have it all. He had 700 wives. You'd think that'd be enough. But on top of the 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. No wonder this guy was exhausted. It's a lot of stress. You see how intent he was on having it all? I mean, this guy was obsessive compulsive. Look at verse 10. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. You ever walk into Nordstrom's and you see something you'd like to buy, but you don't buy it? Solomon never did that. He'd walk into Nordstrom, he'd buy it. He would buy Nordstrom's. That's what he would do. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse. Why? Because he wanted to have it all. There's a man who literally had it all. So what is it like to have it all? For those of us who don't know, yet would like to have it all. Read verse 17. So I hated life. Verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Look at verse 20. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. So what is it like to have it all? You hate your life. Why is it that throughout history some of the most wealthy people on the face of the earth have taken their own lives? Because they discovered what Solomon discovered that having it all is not what it's cracked up to be. Isn't it amazing how driven we become attempting to have it all, or at least to have more, or at least to have better? See, it's a spiritual issue if we're not careful. Anything wrong with having a nice home? No. Anything wrong with having a nice car? No. Just as long as we don't allow it to crowd out the things in life that are really, really important. You can have it all is the first lie. Here's the second lie. You can do it all. Boy, we've bought into this as Americans, hook, line, and sink. You can do it all. And not only have we bought into this lie, but we're passing this lie on to our children. You can do it all. It's amazing to me, young families, all that they're trying to do. You know, when I was a kid, back in the 1840s, (laughs) I grew up in a little town called Bakersfield, California. Loved sports. In our town, you couldn't play organized sports until you were 12 years old. That's when you could play what we called Little League. You could only play baseball. 
If you wanted to play organized football, organized basketball, you had to wait until you got into high school in our little town. But you could play baseball when you got to be 12. So did that mean we didn't play sports? We played sports all of the time. We played football, basketball, baseball. When you would drive down residential neighborhoods, you would have to slow down because kids would be everywhere playing. Basketball, baseball, throwing footballs in the street. You know what I notice as I drive through residential areas in our community? I don't see any kids. I don't see any kids outside playing. See, when I was a kid, we played and we had, when we played sports, we had something called fun. But I don't see that happening in our neighborhoods anymore. And it's just an analysis of where we are as a culture. Where are all these kids? Are people not having? No, kids have, people have kids. Where are the kids? Well, you see, they're not outside playing, having fun. They're on organized teams with uniforms and coaches playing. And we don't start them at 12, but we start them at 8. We start them at 7. We start them at 6. We start them at 5. We start them at 4. Why? And they play baseball. They play soccer. Sometimes they'll be on two soccer teams at the same time. And so we put these little kids, instead of playing and having fun, we give them uniforms, we put them in a league, we give them a coach, a coach usually who never made it athletically, who's frustrated, who's going to live vicariously through these kids and make sure they win the league championship regardless. So you put your kid under a guy like that at four years old, and what happens? Suddenly your, your child, instead of having fun, is under pressure. We've got ballet lessons, we've got French lessons, we've got this lesson, we've got this. We have couples running here, we're running there. We played one game when I was a kid. We practiced on Tuesday nights. Now there are two games, minimum, and you practice every other night. I heard of a man recently who had a 13-year-old son on a select baseball team. They play 138 games a year. That's just one kid. You multiply that by three kids. No wonder we never have dinner together. No wonder you had Thanksgiving at the drive-thru. No, I'm exaggerating. But folks, can you believe how we're living? And then we wonder why we're so stressed. And we wonder why our marriages are, are so frayed and so fragile. We have no time. We're exhausted. Not only are we exhausted, we're exhausting our kids thinking we can do it all. You can't do it all. Why would you want to do it all? Here's the third lie. You deserve it all. Have you heard that? You hear it all the time. Just start picking up that word in commercials. How many times you hear that concept, you deserve, you deserve, you, de you deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. We have been recipients of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything that we have, every good gift that comes down from above is from his hand. He has blessed us abundantly. But see, we live in this culture where we're getting all these lies. So we hear these lies, and if we just rationally thought about it, we'd reject them. But they're just everywhere, and they get down deep inside of us, and we start living, and it adds to the pace of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm about ready for some good news. You know, I think the Bible, I say this reverently, I think it's an ATM. But it doesn't dispense cash. It dispenses truth. You can go to the Bible 24-7. Anytime. You can wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can go to your Bible and you can get truth. We live in a culture that will tell us lies. We live in a culture that will tell us half-truths. The Bible, this is God's Word, He tells us how to live. He tells us how to find joy in life and how to find meaning in life and how to live purposefully. You know what I've decided I want to do in my life? I want to be a laser beam instead of a floodlight. Floodlights, their light is diffused everywhere broadly. But you take a laser beam, a laser beam is light that is focused, that is concentrated. See, if I've got 17 things in my life, I'm going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. But if I get focused on the four or five essential things in my life, I can make an impact and I can make a difference. I believe the enemy wants to diffuse me. I believe he wants to make me shallow. 
I believe he wants me to get so caught in the pace and the treadmill that I see no possible way to get off because it'll affect my relationship with my wife. It'll affect my work. It'll affect my relationship with my children. It affects every area. This is a spiritual issue. So if you're overloaded, where's the hope? Let me give you some principles that I discovered a few years ago for myself, for overloaded people. Here's number one. If you're overloaded, you need a savior. Jesus is our savior. He went to the cross, paid for our sins. He led a sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He was buried. Three days later, he came out of the tomb. He's at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for us. He saved us from sin, but he also saves us from the futility of a busy life. That's Matthew 11. Matthew 11 was the key for me to fighting this spiritual issue of being overworked and overtaxed and overanxious and overwhelmed. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are weary and, could we say, overloaded, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from your neighbors. That's not what he says. Have you ever stopped and analyzed your life and who it is that's influencing you? You know, if you have kids in junior high school or high school, one of the things you're trying to do is that you're trying to equip your kids to withstand peer pressure. Why? Because you know that most of their friends are going the wrong direction. That doesn't quit when you get into your 30s. Most of your peers are living their lives the wrong way. They are seeking wrong things. Why are we living at such a pace? Why are we running around frantically doing this and this and this? It's just unbelievable the pace. Why? I had to look at my own life, and you know what I realized? I was not learning from Christ. I was learning from other people. I was letting other people set the pace in life. Jesus says, learn from me. Huh. So then I thought, all right, there's my first principle. I need a Savior to save me from myself and from this frantic schedule that's killing me. So I decided I'm going to learn from him. Now, how do I learn from him? I learn from him by looking at his word. So I found not only do I need a Savior, here's the second thing I found. I need a Sabbath, a Sabbath. Now, when we say Sabbath, we get responses, different responses from different people. Because some of us, as kids, grew up in real legalistic homes, and the Sabbath was a day where you didn't do anything, and it was real tight and real stringent. Sabbath is an interesting concept. I remember years ago, we were driving through my hometown, and I was showing my kids where I lived and went to school. And as we were driving, there was a grocery store, big supermarket off to the right. I used to ride my bike down there when I was a kid. And we're driving down on that freeway, and I've shown them everything, and I said, you know, there was the first supermarket in Bakersfield. And John, who was about five or six, he's in the back seat. And he said, Dad, there weren't grocery stores when you were a kid before that? I said, no, there were, but there were just little stores on the corner. That's where we would go. This was the first big one in Bakersfield. And I said, and that was the first store in Bakersfield to open on Sunday. And I could see his little brow furrow in the river. He goes, Dad, he said, when you were a kid, the grocery stores weren't open on Sunday? And I said, no. He's thinking. He said, Dad, what happened if, what happened if your family ran out of food Saturday night? I said, John, it was real tough back then. My mom used to have to think through on Saturday night everything we needed to make it to Monday morning. And I used to walk to school in the snow, <laughs> naked. I kind of went crazy there for a minute, but he couldn't, but he said, Dad, were the malls, were they open? I said, there were no malls. What do you mean malls? See, this kid could not conceive that a store would not be open on Sunday because he'd been raised in a culture of 24 what? Seven. How many of you remember when grocery stores weren't open on Sunday? I said, John, when I was a kid, there wasn't a store in America that was open on Sunday. 
In some states, it was against the law to be open on Sunday. His little mind's working. I can see him in the rearview mirror. He's thinking. He's thinking. Then he said, Dad. I said, yeah. He said, Dad, why were the stores closed on Sunday? I said, John, how long did it take God to create the world? He said, it took him six days. I said, that's right, John. I said, John, what did God do on the seventh day? He said he rested. That's right, John. God rested. Folks, you know what's amazing about that? God wasn't tired. God doesn't get tired. God never nods off. He's God. God has never lost an ounce of power. When he uses power, he never loses power. Why then did God rest? He didn't rest for him. He rested for us as an example of how we are to live. And some of us say, oh, well, that's Old Testament law. It was under the law, but the Sabbath existed before the law. They say go 24-7. God says take a Sabbath. Well, I thought Jesus was against the Sabbath. No, Jesus was against the Pharisees. Because you know what the Pharisees did? They added 1,700 nitpicking rules. Who were the Pharisees? They were a bunch of bureaucrats from Austin. (laughs) They sat around and thought about rules and regulations. That's what they did. God was the one who invented the day off. We have holidays. You know what the origin of the word holiday is? It's holy day. God invented the calendar. He said, I want you to work six and take the seventh. I want you to rest. He didn't need to rest. He did it as an example to us. Jesus took on the Pharisees. Jesus didn't like the Pharisees. They had taken his day and ruined it. Six times Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You know why he did that? Because they thought it was wrong. So there's a man with a withered hand. Jesus says, stretch forth thy hand. He stretches it. Boom. Do the Pharisees rejoice? No. They're looking up their law code. Jesus says, hey, you have a donkey that falls into the ditch. Won't you pull him out? Yeah. See the foolishness of bureaucracy? Well, what about the Sabbath? Well, see, we always used to worship on Saturday because the Sabbath was Saturday. But when Jesus rose from the dead in the book of Acts, believers began to meet on Sunday. Now, if you're a pastor, Sunday is not a Sabbath. Because the purpose of a Sabbath is to rest. So a pastor better find another day in his week to have a Sabbath. You know what Jesus did? Jesus set the Sabbath free. There is not one scripture in the New Testament about how you were to observe the Sabbath. But I believe we're still to rest. And you know what happens when we don't rest? We get exhausted. Nobody can go 24-7. Your car can't go 24-7. In your glove compartment, there's an owner's manual, and it has a schedule of Sabbaths for your car. I had two cars in the shop this week getting Sabbaths. I did. They were getting rest. They needed their oil changed. God loves re-words, R-E-words. See, on a Sabbath, when you don't work and you take a day, you rest, you, you relax. Does your cell phone go 24-7? No. You ever been on the phone with somebody and you're saying, i got to hurry up because I think my battery's... <laughs> what happened? It just went out. So what do you do? Put it in a little holder and it, what? As it rests, it recharges. What makes you think you can live any other way? So see, we rest, we relax, we recharge, rejuvenate. Is there a day in your life where you don't answer the phone? Unless the number comes up, it's family, take it. If it's work, don't answer it. Well, I can't do that. Sure you can. Oh, you can do it. It'd be great. They don't need you that bad. You're not that important. (laughs) And I'm not either. They'll get along without you for 24 hours. Do you ever have a day where you don't answer email? Where you don't check email? Well, I have. Why would you have to? Can't you trust God to take care of things in your life for 24 hours? So you can rest, you can relax, you can rejuvenate, you can recline, you can remote, you can... (laughs) But see, we feel guilty when we do that. When I was a kid, my mother made me take music lessons, piano lessons. I wasn't real good at it. 
I didn't really like it. I wanted to be out playing ball. I didn't get all that stuff. I had to do this recital, and I, I, my teacher was always so frustrated with me because I was learning this little piece. And I was watching the notes, and I was working on the notes. But above the, the line thing, on top, were these two little marks. One was kind of squiggly, and one looked like a hat. And I never saw them. Some of you know what they are. What are those called? Those are called what? They're called rest. And what that meant was that I was, when I got there, I was supposed to rest. But I would always just <laughs> play right through. I never got it right. But for some reason at the recital, for some reason, by the grace of God, I'm playing along. I saw the squiggly. I saw the hat. <laughs> I saw the rest. And I observed the rest. And you know what everybody did? They applauded. My teacher applauded. <laughs> I think in the music and rhythm of life, about every six measures, God has put in a rest. Doesn't matter if you take it Sunday, doesn't matter if it's Tuesday, doesn't matter if it's Thursday. But here's what I've noticed. I think when we take that rest every six measures, I think God applauds. I'll tell you this, I know my wife applauds. My kids applaud. Dad, you're not as irritable this Christmas as you were last Christmas. That's what they told me. I think it's because I saw the rest. There are other principles. You need a sanctuary. You need a savior, you need a Sabbath, you need a sanctuary. I thought we were in the sanctuary. This isn't a sanctuary, this is an auditorium. In the Old Testament, God lived in buildings. God doesn't live in buildings anymore, God lives in people. God lives in you if you know Christ. Well, why would I need a sanctuary? A sanctuary is where you get alone. A sanctuary is where you go to hear the voice of God. You go into the sanctuary because you need solitude. You say, well, well, what is solitude? Solitude is withdrawing from people. You say, well, I've got so many people. I'm a young mom. I know. I'm talking about maybe you find 10 minutes in your day. If you're a young mom, you may not be able to find this every day. That's the hardest place of life, and the Lord understands that. But some of you husbands, you know what? You need to understand, if you've got a wife with young children, on your day off, you need to give her some time. That's your job. You be a good husband. You live with your wife in an understanding way. That'll grant her honor. That, that'll recharge her batteries. You handle those kids. You do those diapers. You throw up. <laughs> be good for you. You'll appreciate what she does. She's got to have a sanctuary. That's where you withdraw from people. I love Matthew 14. The crowds were following Jesus. He sent the crowds away, and he went up to the mountain by himself. If Jesus had to send the people away, I've got to send the people away for at least 15 minutes, at least 30. You say, well, where's my sanctuary? You might go to Starbucks. It might be a bench in your backyard. It might be at lunch hour. You shut your office door and you have a, you say, well, Steve, I've got a long commute. Well, then when you get in the car, don't turn on the radio. Just turn it off for 30 minutes. Because you see, in a sanctuary, not only do you need solitude, but you need silence. What's silence? It's withdrawing from noise. We have constant noise in our culture, constant you don't have to turn on that radio. You got a long commute? Turn it off for 15 minutes. What do you do? You just don't do anything. Just think. Just say, Lord, I give you my life all over again today. Would you lead me today? Would you guide me? And then don't say anything for a while. Maybe you got the Bible on a CD. A few minutes later, you stick it in your player and you listen to some passages for a few minutes. Then you turn it off and you think. Say, Lord, you know, I pray for my son today. Lord, I pray for my granddaughter who's going through this. And Lord, we're trying to figure out how we're going to do it. Lord, would you lead us? You know, folks, how can we ever hear the voice of God from the Word of God if there's constant noise and there's constant people? See, in a sanctuary, you also need stillness. 
Psalm 46. See what stillness. It's where you withdraw from activity. Be still and what? Know that I am God. I'll give you one more S. You say there's no way. Well, you have to simplify. If you're so busy that you can't find it, you know what you need to do? You need to have a garage sale. Not a little garage sale, but a garage sale of your life. You take the clutter that's accumulated in your life and you just start giving it away. You start selling. There's a great word I discovered in the scriptures recently. It's the word no. No. I have a little statement that hangs over my computer from C.H. Spurgeon. Learn to say no. It will do you more good than learning to read Latin. Lord, what are the five things, six things I have to do? A lot of good things come, little opportunities. I'll look at them, I'll sit down on my priority, biblically, and if they fit, I'll say yes. If they don't fit, good things. You know what I say? I say no. No. Life becomes more restful. Life becomes more productive. Life becomes more sweet. Marriage gets better. Cover of Newsweek this week. You know what it's about? It's about couples that are so exhausted, they're not having sex. You say, Steve, you shouldn't bring this up. Why not? That's a spiritual issue. Some of you are shocked. Read 1 Corinthians 7. It says couples are to be physically intimate. You are not to stop that. Some guy over here is saying, give me that Bible. Where, where is that passage? <laughs> Read 1 Corinthians 7. He'll be in Bible study this week. God's not a prude, folks. God invented life. He wants to give us the abundant life. Let's do it his way. Father, we bow before you. You are a great God. What a wonderful God you are. You've given us life. Lord, you've given us guardrails in the scripture to protect us from falling off the cliff. Some of us, Lord, in our schedules, we have gone over the cliff because we are not taking the time. We're exhausted. Lord, we'd like a better life. You offer it to us. We want to learn from you. That's our prayer. You're the God who answers prayer. In three months, Lord, we'd sure like to be able to look back and see a change. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name.